There are people out there who are really good at figuring out a mystery, and then there are mysteries that are really good at never being figured out. Just because you've lived in the same home for years and years doesn't mean you're not in for some surprises every now and again. William and Minnie Winston were an elderly couple in the mid-1980s who had been living happily together in their Atlanta home for over 20 years. They had shared a lot of experiences together in that home, but eventually an experience came that sent a chill down their spines unlike any other. When Minnie, awakening one night, came across blood splattered on the bathroom floor. Minnie quickly woke up William and they both inspected the house to find blood spatter in more than just the bathroom, and they promptly contacted police. Police initiated an investigation, but weren't exactly prepared for what they'd find. Inside the house, not only was blood found in the places the Winstons had specified, but it was now found in the bedrooms, on the walls, in the basement, in the kitchen, and under a television set. The amount of blood found was considered to be alarming. Police naturally sought a reasonable explanation. However, they found it a bit hard to come up with one. William regularly underwent kidney dialysis at home, so police assumed that it must have somehow been William's blood, but many insisted that it wasn't. Police decided to collect samples of the blood and took them in for testing, which revealed that the blood was human and type O. Only problem was that William and Minnie were both type A. The origin of the blood still remains unknown to this day, and William and Minnie are long gone. But it is said that the house that bled in southwest Atlanta is still currently occupied. For many people, when bedtime comes, silence is golden. But for Jacqueline Caddow, there was no such thing upon lying her head on her pillow. When nightfall arrived and Jacqueline settled herself into bed, somewhere outside her bedroom window would come a wolf whistle, a whistle often used when a man might find a woman attractive. Over and over, every night, Jacqueline soon became restless, unable to sleep comfortably or find a person responsible. Jacqueline did her best to go about living her life. She had a relationship to tend to, after all. She was deeply in love with a state trooper and eventually announced her engagement to him. How wonderful. But this is when things started to change. The one known simply as the Phantom Whistler had heard the news. The whistling turned from taunting wolf whistles to the tune of a funeral march. At the tail end of each song, the Phantom would break into a blood-curdling moan. Jacqueline and her family were terrified. They couldn't escape the Phantom. He seemed to know every detail of Jacqueline's life, and he was very displeased by her decision to marry, and would often call her at home to tell her that he'd kill her if she went through with the wedding. But soon the whistler wasn't bound by limitations of the night. Jacqueline, while at work one day, suddenly heard that familiar whistle once again as she had every single night, and in terror and disbelief, collapsed. Yet again, those who searched came up empty-handed. No one could capture the Phantom, 
leading some to believe he was exactly that. Jacqueline's plight reached newspapers, and even with people passing by her property to try to catch a glimpse of the Phantom and law enforcement actively seeking out the one responsible, no one ever saw a thing. Eventually, Jacqueline stayed with relatives, being unable to remain at home anymore due to the torment from the Phantom. It didn't work. Outside the bedroom window came an all-too-familiar whistle, a funeral march just as before, when she moved to stay with her fiancé's family in another attempt to get away. Her mother received a phone call. The voice told her mother to tell Jackie that he knew she was staying with her fiancé's family. But Jacqueline was undeterred by the elusive Phantom Whistler. She married the love of her life regardless, and the Phantom Whistler never stayed true to his promise. If he had been in attendance that day, he never said a word, nor whistled a single tune. Jacqueline's state trooper husband kept her safe from the Phantom, who faded back into the shadows for good. Have you ever heard a suspicious sound coming from somewhere inside your house? Probably nothing, of course, just your imagination getting the best of you. Unless it's not. Hinter Kaifeck was a small farmstead in 1920s Germany that housed an extended family, an older couple with their widowed daughter and her two young children, aged seven and two. The family also kept a maid in their employ until one day when the maid decided that it was time to go. She complained that the house was surely haunted and that she was very uncomfortable staying there, not worth the money. So she packed up her things and quit, leaving the creepy farm behind. Truth be told, this decision was the best one she could have made. Though the family didn't exactly buy into anything paranormal happening with their farm, there were a few peculiar things that happened that the father made his neighbors aware of. He told them one winter, six months after their maid had left, that he had found a mysterious set of footprints out in the snow, leading from the darkened tree line towards his farm. The footprints only went one way and did not extend past his farm and did not return back to the trees. Unfortunately, he thought little of this. The family went on to experience strange noises coming from the attic, some of which sounded like footsteps. They found an odd newspaper that had no place being on their farm and their house keys went missing. None of this was reported to the police and the family continued on business as usual, which would turn into a very terrible decision. The family decided to hire a new maid. The woman arrived at the house just before nightfall. Such poor timing. That very night, only hours after the maid had arrived, the entire family, including the maid, were slaughtered. One by one, members of the family were led into the barn where they were chopped to death with a mattock. The father, mother, their daughter, and her daughter were all brutally murdered. Afterwards, the killer stalked inside the house and butchered the daughter's two-year-old son in his cot before moving into the maid's chamber and massacring her. The murders went unreported for some time as neighbors still saw smoke rising from their chimney. 
When neighbors notified police that no one from the family had been seen in days, they went to investigate and stumbled upon the gruesome scene. Whoever had murdered the inhabitants of Hinter Kaifek had remained on the property and was even sure to have fed the animals. Though there was a large amount of money and valuables in the home at the time of the murders, it was never touched. When they found the body of the seven-year-old daughter in the barn, they had determined she had remained alive for hours after the murder of her family and had witnessed it. For unknown reasons, she had ripped out clumps of her own hair before she died. The farm was torn down the following year in 1923, and to this day the case remains unsolved. The world is full of eerie mysteries, but don't you worry too much, it's very unlikely that you'll become part of one. But I suppose that's what all of these people thought as well. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Some of us get lost in our day-to-day -day routines. The monotonous flow from waking up to settling in bed to everything in between can get boring very quickly. So it certainly helps to know that life is capable of surprising you in mysterious and rather tragic ways. Malaysia Airlines Flight MH370 left Kuala Lumpur International Airport for Beijing, China. However, the plane and all 239 people aboard never made it to the intended destination. The plane stayed on air traffic control's radar for under an hour before Malaysian military radar tracked it was over the Adaman Sea. Authorities became suspicious when the plane made a hard southwest turn, a massive deviation from its planned flight path. Soon after, the Boeing 777 disappeared off all radar, and communication from the pilot ceased. Later, reports theorized the plane most likely crashed in the Indian Ocean, and radar picked up possible debris from the crash, though no solid evidence of debris was initially found. More than a year later, part of the plane's wing was discovered on an island in the Indian Ocean. We will very likely never know exactly what happened to the passengers of flight MH370 as the situation inside the airplane that day is shrouded in mystery. In regards to its ending, the pilot may have said it best with his last words to air traffic control, All right, good night. Perhaps he was a nobleman, perhaps a servant, Historians are still trying to figure it out, but one thing is for sure. The man harbored dangerous information. Some of King Louis XIV's record mention an unnamed man who was transferred to the prison of Pignerol for having sensitive information about the country. San Mars, the governor of the prison, was instructed to not let the man speak to anyone unless it was for needs like hunger or thirst. If the prisoner uttered one word that didn't pertain to his needs, he was to be killed on the spot. However, historians aren't sure if this is the infamous Man in the Iron Mask that remained masked for over 30 years to silence him. Some records say the mask was steel, not iron, and others say it was black velvet, not metal at all. Still, the mask's purpose was the same, to keep him quiet. 
San Mars, a retired musketeer, kept the man in the mask by his side throughout all three decades, always ready to end his life if the need arose. In 1703, the man in the iron mask died and was buried under the name Marioli. Perhaps this stood for Ercole Macho, an Italian count jailed for trying to double-cross the king. Or maybe the prisoner was Ustash Duje, the most popular guest from historians. But so far, the man in the iron mask is still a mystery to this day. One of the most devastating things a parent faces is losing their child, and maybe the only thing worse than having a child kidnapped is discovering they have died. Pauline Picard was only two years old when she was stolen from her family's farm in Brittany, France. Her parents immediately sought the police, and locals formed a search party, but there was no trace of Pauline. A few weeks later, the Picards received a call that a little girl matching Pauline's description was found 200 miles away in another city. Immediately, the Picards boarded a train to Cherbourg, anticipating the moment they would reunite with their baby. But after a couple hours with the girl, they sensed something off about her. She didn't recognize them, was very fearful and shy, and her dialect was different from her family's. However, Pauline's mother insisted this was Pauline, putting the discrepancies down to trauma. A couple weeks after Pauline's reunion, a bicyclist found a body of a little girl near the family's farm. She was missing her head, feet, and hands, and near it was the skull of a full-grown male. But the evidence that perplexed the Picards the most were the clothes neatly folded next to the body, the very same Pauline wore when she went missing. So who was the little girl they claimed as their own? If it was Pauline, how did the toddler travel so many miles from home without anyone noticing? Who was the dead little girl found near the farm? And who did the skull belong to? There are many questions surrounding this mysterious case, and it seems we may never get the answers. Our ancestors have left us numerous scrolls and books, all documenting what life was like for them in their time. Some of them may be difficult for us to understand, but none are as cryptic as the Voynich Manuscript. The Voynich Manuscript has been carbon dated to the 15th century, coming out of the Italian Renaissance. The tome was purchased in 1912 by a Polish book dealer named Wilfred Voynich, hence how it got its name. The manuscript, which is missing pages, has left scholars scratching their heads. Written in a language that has yet to be decoded, only some linguists and coders from World War I and II came close to deciphering it. The illustrations are extremely unusual for its time and place of origin. Professionals have gleaned that the book is broken into six categories, herbal, astronomical, biological, cosmological, pharmaceutical, and recipes, each indicated by the illustrations. The diagrams of the plants are the most perplexing, as none of them match any plant known to this day. There are drawings of the constellations, but also star charts that are impossible to decipher, and it seems the nude women highly intrigued the author. Some believe the manuscript is a hoax, whether from Wilfred Voynich himself or from the writer of the strange book. 
while others believe it is a connection to alien life. Whatever the truth may be, this manuscript is one of the most mysterious books to be discovered in all of history. In 1957, in Hexham, England, two little girls were hit by a car on their way to church. 11-year-old Joanna and 6-year-old Jacqueline died that day, leaving their parents childless and shattered. John, the father, prayed continuously for his girls to come back. A year after the accident, his wife Florence announced she was pregnant, and John was certain she would birth twin girls. Maybe it was fate. Maybe it was John's devoted prayers, but whatever it was, Florence gave birth to two baby girls they named Gillian and Jennifer. John noticed that even though the girls were identical twins, Jennifer had two birthmarks that Gillian didn't. A white line across her head and a mark on her leg matching a scar and birthmark that Jacqueline used to have. The twins grew up never knowing the story of their older deceased siblings, but coincidences surrounding their lives coincided with the idea of reincarnation. The twins found and approached Joanna and Jacqueline's toys with a strong familiarity, even though they had never seen them before. They also gave the toys the same names that Joanna and Jacqueline had. They pointed to a school they'd never been to, claiming it was their own. As they walked past an idling car, the twins screamed at the top of their lungs, afraid for their lives, as they yelled out, the car, it's coming to get us. The strangest coincidence John and Florence witnessed was the sinister game the twins played. Jennifer, lying on the floor, would rest her head in Gillian's lap while Gillian told her blood was coming out of her eye because that's where the car hit her. The mystery of the girl's behavior was studied by a child psychologist named Dr. Ian Stevenson, who believed the girls were experiencing the reincarnation of their sisters. Eventually, the memories of Jacqueline and Joanna seemed to fade, and both Gillian and Jennifer went on to lead normal lives. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Crime scenes are extraordinarily similar to puzzles. There are many different pieces that hold crucial details. Although some details are obvious, others are less apparent. But at length, a detective can usually connect the pieces until the image the details create becomes visible. Even so, there have been some instances where the puzzle cannot be put together, and investigators are only left scratching their heads. A very curious crime scene that left many questions. The case has remained unsolved to this day and continues to perplex all who read about its gruesome nature. On July 21st, 1964, at 4am, Juan Valdez, a resident at Patio's Apartments, smelled smoke. The New Orleans police received a call. There was a fire, nothing out of the ordinary. When the officers arrived at the scene, they found a fire burning in the back of the apartment building. When inside, they discovered a blazing mattress and promptly dragged it out of the house. However, something else that they found in the apartment changed their entire investigation the body of Dr. Mary Sherman. The right side of her corpse was burned severely, 
and her scorched lung, liver, and intestines were visible. Moreover, Sherman's right arm and torso were clearly missing. On the walls, floor, and her chest was blood splatter, a sign that she had been stabbed. When her body was examined more closely, they realized that she had been stabbed in the heart, abdomen, and shoulder. These were likely self-defense wounds. There was very little fire damage, and the rest of the room was unharmed. Oddly enough, Dr. Sherman's purse, prescription drugs, and jewelry were left completely untouched. Indeed, officers detected that something was very wrong about this case. The police were soon told by neighbors that Dr. Sherman's vehicle was missing from its usual spot at 3101 St. Charles Ave. It was found later that day at 1.08 p.m. at the 2600 block of Chestnut Street, nine blocks from her apartment. Found on the street near Dr. Sherman's car were an empty Diet Right can, a perfume dispenser, and a tube of lipstick. The keys to her vehicle were not discovered until the following day when a man trimming a hedge found them. Unfortunately, investigators were never able to recover any fingerprints. It was officially ruled that Dr. Sherman's death was caused by a stab wound to the heart. During the five-year investigation, authorities questioned at least 104 people and searched 49 locations in the vicinity. Sadly, her case continues to remain unsolved over 50 years later. It was the morning of January 15th, 1947. A mother was taking her child for a walk in a Los Angeles neighborhood when suddenly she came upon the exceedingly mutilated body of a young woman. At first, the mother assumed it was a trashed mannequin severed in half, but upon closer inspection, it immediately became clear that the body was, in fact, very real. The woman quickly ran to a neighboring house to call police. When authorities arrived, they found no blood on the scene, an indication that the woman had been killed somewhere else. But even more peculiar was the fact that the body was drained of its blood. The Los Angeles Police Department led the investigation, although the FBI's help was requested when they were trying to identify the corpse. After the young woman's fingerprints matched two others in the FBI's database, she was shortly thereafter identified as 22-year-old aspiring Hollywood star Elizabeth Short, later dubbed the Black Dahlia by the press. The FBI aided the LAPD further by checking the records of suspects in the case. Due to the fact that the incisions on Short's body were clean, detectives investigated a group of students at the University of Southern California Medical School. However, nothing ever came of it. Later, fingerprints were carefully studied on a letter sent from the potential killer. Even so, the FBI was never able to match them with any other fingerprint in their database. Although there are many speculations, no one truly knows who killed Elizabeth Short and their reasons for murdering her at all. Her death will most likely continue to remain a mystery. A 
Our final story isn't exactly a crime scene, yet it is a scene of tragic death that left many in disbelief and is worth mentioning. The Empire State Building has been a popular destination for those seeking to take their own life. Since its completion in 1931, 36 or more people have committed suicide by throwing themselves from the top floors of the towering structure. Perhaps the most notable suicide was that of Evelyn McHale. On the morning of May 1st, 1947, at almost 11 a.m., a traffic director looked up and noticed a white scarf falling from the Empire State Building when quite suddenly there was a loud crash. Panic shortly thereafter ensued on the streets. As the traffic director followed a crowd of people equally as curious as him, he saw the body of a woman almost perfectly posed on top of a crushed limousine. The woman's ankles were crossed flawlessly, her gloved hands held tightly onto a necklace, and her face was remarkably calm, almost as if she was only taking a nap. But the woman was certainly dead. It was merely the manner in which she was found that gained so much attention. A young photography student, Robert Wiles, took the immortal photo of Mikhail lying on the car. The image was soon picked up by news outlets across the entire United States. This would ultimately lead to her death being referred to as the most beautiful suicide. Time magazine even made the photograph of the young woman picture of the week. There is still some uncertainty regarding the events that resulted in Mikhail committing suicide. She was going to marry her fiancé, Barry Rhodes, in June. Rhodes would later state that nothing was out of the ordinary, and Mikhail was very happy about getting married. However, after her death, Rhodes never married. A suicide note was later found. In it, Mikhail explained, I don't want anyone in or out of my family to see any part of me. Could you destroy my body by cremation? I beg of you and my family, don't have any service for me or remembrance for me. My fiancé asked me to marry him in June. I don't think I would make a good wife for anybody. He is much better off without me. Tell my father I have too many of my mother's tendencies. Regrettably, her wish to disappear from the world was never truly fulfilled, and her death will never be forgotten. Thank you all for watching. I just wanted to say thank you to all those who helped the Seriously Strange Twitter page hit 1 million followers. We did it in such a short time. If you'd like to get creepy facts like the ones from this episode on your Twitter feed, be sure to follow at Serious Strange. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. 
We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.